Welcome to Karen Commons, a biblically-minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Karen University. Hello, my name is Keith Plummer, and I serve as the Dean of the School of Divinity at Karen University. Thank you for listening to this episode of Karen Commons. We don't know what is true, what is knowable, what is trustworthy. Our information environment is chaotic and overwhelming, rife with conspiracy theories, fake news, and habit-forming digital manipulation. It is breaking our brains, polluting our politics, and corrupting Christian community. It may be the most pressing and unprecedented challenge of discipleship in the American church. Those words are from the book Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis, Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community, published by Brazos Press and authored by my guest, Bonnie Christian, a seasoned journalist who writes opinion pieces on foreign policy, religion, electoral politics, and more. Her column, The Lesser Kingdom, appears in print and online at Christianity Today. She's a fellow at Defense Priorities, a foreign policy think tank, And her work has been published at outlets including The New York Times, The Week, USA Today, CNN, Politico, Reason, and The Daily Beast. She's a graduate of Bethel Seminary and lives in Pittsburgh with her husband and twin sons. Bonnie, welcome and thank you for taking time to join us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, I have eagerly been looking forward to uh, this conversation because I so enjoyed your book and found it in some ways informative, certainly, but at times it kind of confirmed some of my worst fears. <laughs> and But yet I wanted to introduce you and your work to other people because I think that it is so important, particularly for uh, Christian readers to to pick up. And before we delve into the book in greater detail, though, you bring a unique combination of experience and education to this work. You have a theological uh, training, and you are, as I said, a seasoned journalist. Could you tell us just a little bit about how those two worlds first merged in your life, how you got involved in journalism? Sure, yeah. So I I knew fairly early on, I would say by high school, that I was interested in in getting into journalism. Um, I was a big reader of like Time and, and Newsweek and later World Magazine. And so when I, my undergraduate degree, I, I majored in political science. And after that, I spent several years in the D.C. area working for some political nonprofits there. Um, and the work I was doing there was sort of like communications type stuff. Um, so mm-hmm. writing, but much more in logistical stuff like come to our event. And I realized after a few years there that if I wanted to um, more seriously write about ideas as opposed to um, that kind of calm stuff. And if I wanted to do it in the way that I, I would like to do that, I probably needed an advanced degree. And um, so that was when I decided to go to seminary. Um, and it was while I was in seminary and thus stopped working full-time in those communications roles that I started uh, doing some freelance journalism work and gradually built up my portfolio. And so for a number of years, my primary home base was a, an outlet called The Week up through this past May. Uh, and now I'm I'm back to more of a freelance position, writing for Christianity Today and elsewhere. And my my first book, which came out in 2018, was much more on the theological side of things. Certainly, like some 
touched on some political and social topics or, or topics that at least intersect with politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one is, I think, much more born out of the and much more directly connected to the journalism work I do day to day. Right. Was there any particular precipitating event or combination of events that gave rise to the idea for this book for you? It was really more noticing just a pattern of topics that I kept returning to in my my columns, I would say, especially in 2018, 2019, 2020, that, you know, it wasn't like I was deliberately planning a series or something. I I just sort of, because of what was happening in the headlines, uh, started coming back to these similar themes and gradually started to see connections between them and determined that I should, you know, perhaps write about it in a format that would be of interest to people for more than two or three days. Mm -hmm. Well, you use the word crisis and you, you say that we are in the midst of a knowledge crisis. And you, you say early on that by using that word, you're not hyperbolizing. Could you tell us a, a bit about why you think that word is, is so fitting? Yeah. I mean, I think certainly in terms of any one individual person's experience of this, it, it may not reach a crisis level in, in your particular life. Um, I think for some people, they they would use that word about their own experience. And I think certainly at the aggregate scale of, of where we are um, as, a, as a country, as the American church, crisis is an exaggeration. And so the the knowledge crisis that I'm writing about is that sense of and I think unfortunately very familiar sense of unease and uncertainty that a lot of us feel when we try to engage in media, especially online, not exclusively, um, but especially online. And just the the questions that it brings about like, okay, is what I'm looking at real? Is it Are these voices that I'm encountering trustworthy? How am I able to figure out what is a, a true and accurate account of this thing that happened maybe thousands of miles away from me that I can never personally verify. And it's not just the, the uncertainty and, and, and the, the way it, it feels to try to encounter the world and the news that way. It's also, I think, the, the different way we're answering those questions and the, uh, the relational turmoil that's resulting in both especially when we're coming down on different sides of things and you're having conversations with maybe family members, maybe friends, um, increasingly, I think, fellow congregants in local churches and saying like, you know, it's not just that I disagree with you about what the policy should be here. It's that we can't seem to agree on what is the the baseline situation. Like we, how are you looking at the same world as I'm looking at? Um, and that, that sense of being at an impasse, I think, uh, and and the deep frustration that comes with it, and in many cases, the broken relationships that come with it, I think that's what really gets us into a, a crisis territory. Yeah, I was thinking about the title of the book, and untrustworthy is an adjective that applies to someone or something. And as you just answered, clearly in many people's minds, what is untrustworthy is the news, mm. the the media. But is it fair to say? that what you were trying to describe is broader than that, that we're kind of living in an ethos where there is a general skepticism and suspicion where we're looking at each other and wondering, are you 
trustworthy, or maybe even beginning with the default position, you are not trustworthy until you demonstrate otherwise. Yeah, I think so. You know, a, a lot of people want to point to, oh, the problem is the media or the problem is social media. And those are certainly parts of it. And, and you know, especially social media, I, I offer plenty of critiques. I think I'm maybe a, a little bit more sympathetic to the media, probably from being part of it, than perhaps the average American. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of fault to go around in, in those like institutional contexts. But it's, it is, as you say, much bigger than that. It is much more about all of us, and particularly because of the way social media allows us to set all of ourselves up as like little informal pundits. Um, yes. And so many of us do. And so, yeah, it becomes not just do I trust CNN, but like, do I trust my aunt who's posting these things on Facebook? And untrustworthiness also is so much in the eye of the beholder. You know, someone that I think is untrustworthy, you might think is trustworthy. And, and so I think that because it is so much about our our perceptions of things as much as it is about legitimate, verifiable failings of, say, the press or bad design or incentives of, say, social media, it does involve, I think, all of us on a much more individual scale and a much more relational scale, as opposed to just problems with these big institutions where we want to tend to want to point the fingers and, and kind of absolve ourselves of responsibility. Yes, you're right. In the second chapter, the press isn't innocent of contributing to our epistemic crisis, but neither are we all as the press's audience and as social media users. And you did a good job there of showing how it is that there is enough responsibility to go around. You do acknowledge that there are biases at work in the media. You do say that there is um, maybe a center-left leaning that many people often point to. But you, you point out a number of other biases that probably don't make the radar in many of our minds. And one of them had to do with uh, speed bias. Could you unpack some of that? Yeah. So when you poll Americans and, and you say, what do you think is the main thing wrong with the press? The answer people overwhelmingly give is they're lying on purpose. And the reason they're lying is to advance their political tribe. They want, they, you know, they want to lie because of politics. Um, and I think that the, the actual reasons that um, the media and, and, you know, I'm speaking here about like pretty traditional media outlets like newspapers, cable news shows, um, not sort of like some random blog. The reasons that the media are getting things wrong are generally a lot more mundane and practical. Um, and speed is a big, a big part of it. Uh, we've had since the 1990s, you know, the 24 hour news cycle and the Internet has only accelerated this. It's just a, a constant, constant, constant demand for more content. Um, and if you're not doing it, someone else will. And so it's very difficult for media outlets, unless their brand is very clearly established as like we do long, slow investigations, which is not what most people are, are interested in reading and crucially interested in paying for, then the pressure is immense to say we need to be pumping out content all day long. I remember one time when I was, I, I overwhelmingly write opinion now. But when I was one time when I was a, a more junior news writer, I was usually pretty freelance on this and, and didn't do like all day shift work. But I, I was filling in for someone 
did a like an eight hour shift of news writing and I wrote 18 pieces before mm. I called it a day. Now they're all very short, right? But like y- you have to be pumping it out. Um, and that was an unusual situation. I think it was like election day or something. So there was a lot of things to cover. But when you get to that level, when you, you're writing at such speed, um, and I wasn't doing original reporting there, you know, I was like aggregating and analyzing. But even if you're doing your original reporting, um, it just encourages shortcuts. It encourages, um, and not necessarily like deceptive or or um, malicious shortcuts, but for example, if you are on a very tight deadline and you need to quote an expert source. Who are you going to go to? You're going to go to someone who is familiar and easily reached. And that is going to tend to be um, elected officials. It's going to be bureaucrats, think tank experts, um, corporate PR staff. You're probably not going to have time to go find some more heterodox voice from some, you know, because they, they take longer to reply to their emails. They don't have an answer ready to go. And so that's not a case of wanting to exclude those other voices. It's a case of, I have half an hour to file this, and this is the person who's going to answer my calls. Does that excuse it? No. But I mean, as media consumers, we have to think about like, every time we're we're clicking on an article, we're signaling to a a media company, this is the content I want. And so if the way that we're consuming signals that demand for more, 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 faster, 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 well, then, you know, journalists have to pay the rent too. They're going to do what they can do to give you the product that you're asking for. Yeah. Do you see that only accelerating? I don't know how it can get much faster than it is right now. I mean, the Trump administration years in particular seems to just really kick things into, into a high gear. It used to be that there was a, a de facto respect for the weekend, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Where like if if a if news came out on a Friday afternoon, it was because someone was trying to to sort of like dump it when all the journalists had signed off for the weekend and wouldn't notice. Whereas during the Trump years, there was a, a long stretch there where like the Washington Post and the New York Times in particular would put out these major investigations that they could have released whenever they wanted. They would put it out on a Friday afternoon, and that sort of obliged everyone else to work the weekend to cover the implications and fallout of those stories um, because they're such big outlets and are able to, to, you know, to redirect the news cycle like that. And so, yeah, it's hard to imagine that it would be like humanly possible to go faster than it goes right now, but who knows, maybe someone will innovate something worse. Yeah. So the catch 22 is that on one hand, people are saying we want more careful reporting. We want more, careful journalism but that's not but, what they click on and pay for yeah yeah no. so the, the revealed preference is <laughs> much worse than we like to imagine about ourselves yeah. um and yeah i mean the question of how to pay for things in in journalism is a hugely implicated in in all, many many of the the things that we don't like about the media right now because the, the press used to be a cash cow from advertising but now yes. that we have Craigslist instead of classifieds and we have Facebook Marketplace and, you know, the local newspaper is not the only advertise, advertising game in town, the rates are just through the floor. And so you have to figure out a way to pay for things. And we haven't really figured out, I don't think, a, a good way. Yeah. So is it accurate to say that a news outlet that actually invested in the time that would actually be necessary probably wouldn't survive. 
oh yeah, everyone else will beat them to publication and no one will, you know, I, there, there are a few news outlets that have carved out um, that ability to do, you know, like longer magazine style investigative reporting. Mm-hmm. They generally are not the ones who are breaking, you know, sort of like basic newswire stories because they they don't, you know, have the resources to do both. Um, and they also generally don't have the same readership. I mean, like something like the the New Yorker or Harper's or something like that. Like, right. and and in many cases, like Harper's, for example, is such a like they're they're considered very like intellectual and highbrow, and they do this investigative reporting. They also, from from what I've heard, pay pennies. Like the money's just not there for that kind of content. Yeah. And that is related to one of the other biases that you um, elaborated on, the profit and entertainment bias. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I was reading your book, I was frequently brought back to some of the observations of Neil Postman mm-hmm. in terms of um, what it is that he was identifying as the way that the medium of television had made everything about show business, had made everything about entertainment and dramatically transformed public discourse and do you think that uh, there's something along those same lines with news yeah i mean i think that tv is almost impossible to be a good medium for like serious communication of, of news um just the the incentives of the medium the way that you're you're presented this little package of a story in two or three minutes and it's presented as like this complete thing. And now you know about this story because you watched this two minute video. You don't know about the story. You watch a two minute video and the next video is about like the dog mayor in the next town over. Like, it's just not, I, I think that certainly you can, <laughs> I'm sure we can find an example of something that's worse than cable news, but it's not good. Uh, yeah. And I think, the louder and flashier and noisier a medium is, the, the stronger that pull toward entertainment um, is going to be because that's, you know, again, it's a business. You, you do have to pay people wages um, and that's what works in that medium. And so, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, again, it is something that, that like as an industry, we have to figure out, like, how do we pay the bills long-term now that advertising isn't what it used to be? And we're really only you know, 10, 15 years into that problem, which feels like ages, but is not in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. And that is uh, related to something that you deal with later in the book in terms of the phenomena of expert failure and presumed expertise on the part of amateurs who have access, easy and quick access to uh, factoids. How do those two things work together towards exacerbating the knowledge crisis. Yeah, well, so I mean, I think after the last few years of the pandemic, when a lot of experts did not comport themselves very well, uh, it's very easy to think of examples of expert failure and, and especially cases where you had like personal hypocrisy where governors and mayors were issuing some order and saying like, you know, this is the public health rule and then going and doing exactly the opposite of what they said everyone could do. Um, and cases where you had had experts just outright admitting, well, I told a noble lie. You know, I, I told the public what I thought that uh, they were ready to hear, not what was really true. Mm. And those kinds of behaviors just, just deeply destroy trust in experts. I also think, though, that, you know, without getting into that sort of obvious uh, culpability, 
that expert failure can be a little bit more mundane too, where, for example, you might be an expert in, in one field and you might not be very good at public communications, but now in the age of social media, you're being asked to do that also. And maybe you're legitimately good at, at, at what you do, but you go on Twitter and totally botch it and, and who would trust what you have to say now? Or maybe you are pretty good at communications, and so now you're getting asked to be provide expert comment on things that are actually outside your expertise, but you still say yes. Yeah. And um, so there, there's there's a lot of blame for the experts, but I I do think at the same time that you know a, a society as complex as ours does not work without expertise and without appropriate respect for expertise that is employed well, and we are in many cases, losing that respect and, and trying to sort of flatten the distinction between experts and non-experts. And expertise is not only academic, you know, a plumber is an expert. Um, the reason I think we tend to see it more in these sort of like academic and elite spaces is that if you try to flatten the um, the difference between yourself and your plumber, you're going to have a bad time pretty fast and you're going to have to go back to relying on the plumber's expertise because your house is full of water, whereas you can you know, dismiss the, the expertise of, of some public health person or something and not suffer any immediate consequences. But the reality is that you know, Googling things is not, in fact, the same as having you know, a PhD in a subject. And as non-experts listening to, to people with expertise, I think we need to get better at, you know, expecting and, and giving grace for some degree of not necessarily even failure, some of that, but, but also like self-correction. I mean, we, we should be expecting people to update and we should also, as they learn more, and we also should be allowing them to say, I don't know, um, in a way that doesn't seem super possible right now. Like our, our media environment is very geared towards certainty. We want you to make a quick and pithy pronouncement and someone who, you know, gets invited on NBC as an expert and their answers are mostly, I don't know, is not going to get invited back. Right. Right. You do have a lot to say about social media. It certainly has become a, a predominant means of our interacting about the, the events of the day in the constructive element of your book, the last three chapters, particularly mm -hmm. uh, one of the pieces of advice that you offer that I wrote in the margin, I said, yes, is that there's certain content that you say needs to be taken offline. What happens when we don't do that? How does that contribute to the epistemological crisis that you're uh, writing about? And, and under what circumstances, what situations, what kind of things would you say, particularly to believers, if you're going to be dealing with this, this is something you need to take offline? Yeah, I mean, I think that social media is is fine for a lot of, um, I don't want to say frivolous, but pretty like lighthearted and, you know, positive and in some senses, superficial interactions like you know i think the examples i gave were if you you have a kid or you buy a new house yeah you know post that on instagram or whatever that's you know that's fine it's good for like scheduling parties uh i don't think that it works for conversations where you have to explain something really deeply or you it's going to raise intense emotions in people 
Um, and so, you know, that's that's frequently going to be political conversations, um, very possibly also theological conversations. Now, by offline, I, I think some of this stuff, depending on the conversation partners, some of this stuff might happen fine in some sort of like private message, like email or something. Mm. Maybe, maybe not. Some people are up for that. Some people aren't. But to have those conversations in, a, in the public forum of social media, where not only are you thinking about, you know, how can I explain this to my friend or family member? How can we talk this through? You've got an audience. And sometimes that audience is like chiming in and interrupting and they're not yes. in the same you know, relationship with you guys. Um, and I just think that that's, that's very destructive to a relationship when you have, you know, a, a real disagreement and especially something that, that raises emotional stakes for people. It's just, if you start getting into it with someone, I think 99 times out of a hundred, the appropriate move is to say like, let's keep talking about this, not here. Um, yeah. Because it just does not end well. Yeah. There's a, there's a performative element mm -hmm. to social media and one of the points that you uh, bring out is that people are reluctant to reverse statements made in public. And so then there's the incentive to double down, even in the face of strong evidence to the contrary. Mm -hmm. And so getting rid of the audience mm -hmm. for the purpose of having those in-depth conversations seems to make a whole lot of sense. If for nothing else than to reduce the degree of temptation to which we're exposing ourselves mm -hmm. uh, to appeal to our pride before an audience. Yeah. I mean, it's humiliating to lose an argument online. Nobody, nobody wants to be in that position. And, and we know that just the way that our brains work. Um, yeah. Once you take a position in public, it's harder to change your mind. And that's, that's even true of inconsequential things like it like someone will if someone commits to saying this line is longer than that line and then they're shown that it's an optical illusion and actually the lines are the same length if they've stated that opinion that one line was longer in front of a room of people they will keep arguing um and if and it's it's like it's a subconscious effect and if we're, we have that effect about something that does not matter at all how much more are we going to have it about you know really serious political and and, and theological topics yeah and I can imagine a Christian, and maybe not even, it doesn't matter whether it's Christian or non-Christian, but it might be stronger in a believer, hearing mm -hmm. what you just said mm -hmm. and thinking at some level, yeah, that might be true of most people, <laughs> <laughs> but I can handle it. Mm. What would you say? I would suggest that, um, no, <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I, would, I would suggest that we think that about ourselves and it's it's just typically not true. And that generally our assumption, our sort of default assumption about our own behavior on social media is that we can handle less than we think. Um, and that a big part of that is that we, you know, we, we got sort of dumped into this situation quite rapidly. We're, we're like, what, 20 years in right now? Not even. Mm -hmm. At the very beginning, it was like for kids. It was like for college kids. And mm -hmm. then by the time the general public starts getting in on it, this is like 2008. And the Obama campaign was using social media in a way that nobody had ever seen before in politics. And it was so optimistic, like, you know, we're, we're going to be better citizens. We're going to be better friends. We're going to be so connected. Um, and it all it all went sour so quickly. You know, by within eight years, I would say by 2016, very different yeah. place. And so. 
just the rapidity of that, the idea that any of us have really um, built up the sort of the, the skills and the character to handle social media well. I think in the vast majority of cases, we're deluding ourselves. And that even if we are above average, we still have to reckon with just the inherent incentives of the medium. Um, and you, you mentioned Neil Postman earlier, and he, he quotes um, Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. Like the, mm-hmm. the context in which we are doing something will shape our behavior. Um, yes. Even even if you know we we are well intentioned and we are we are trying to use it well, I think just like the news is always going to get dumbed down and trivialized on cable, um, our political conversations are always going to get escalated and made worse on social media because the the place where we're having those conversations matters, uh, even if we are you know well intended and and trying to keep hold of ourselves. Yeah. Somewhat related to this, uh, in your chapter on the mob and the whole phenomenon of uh, cancel culture, you uh, quote Alan Jacobs, who wrote, when a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so because it retains an inchoate sense of justice, but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. Your explanation of the dynamics of the the mob mentality and um, this idea of publicly shaming and doing so in oftentimes in the name of justice was very very I think perceptive and, and disturbing. How does that too contribute to this atmosphere of epistemological crisis? Yeah. Well, it's it's tricky to talk about cancel culture because <laughs> that phrase has become so polarizing, right? People think they know what it is and it's uh, destroying America or it doesn't exist. Um, I think what ought to be easier to agree, to agree with than anything about that phrase in particular is that we we have this this public sphere in which we very much want to judge people and punish them for bad behavior or bad words these that these standards of badness uh are not fixed and they change pretty rapidly um i think more rapidly than anyone who is not way too online can be expected to keep up with and that we do not once someone has offended we do not have a a good way to handle repentance and also forgiveness. And so what happens is we have large groups of people coming to heap shame on someone whom they do not know, whose behavior did not affect them personally. Um, you know, their lives would be no different if they had never heard about what this person did. Uh, the person did not harm them in any way, but they come to heap the shame on this thing this person did, typically not a, not a criminal thing, you know, just something mm-hmm. that we've decided is bad. And, you know, generally to try to get them to lose their jobs, because that's one of the very few concrete punishments you can inflict um, from afar when there's no criminal offense. And then the mob moves on to something else. But the person who offended if they apologize, the apology is, is going to be deemed insincere and injected. So 
you know, it's almost a disincentive to apologize because it doesn't matter anyway. And sometimes it only makes people angrier, gets them to redouble their attacks. And then what, what makes it especially unique is that for the person who, who offended, the experience is never really over. Like the tweets are going to stop coming, but that record, that, that record will always be there, the digital record, unless they change their names legally. Every time they apply for a job, if they're, you know, especially if they're in the sort of like middle class, white collar career where a prospective employer is going to Google you, they're unhirable for the rest of their lives. Um, you know, and maybe maybe what they did really was, you know, pretty offensive. Does it mean they should have no career and, and no way to work in their like yeah. chosen field? Probably not. And, you know, the, the Alan Jacobs quote points to this sort of deeper problem of not having a way to handle repentance and forgiveness in public. We just heap on the shame and move on. And that's, I think, a very clear dynamic, even if you don't like the cancel culture term. Sure. And what is troubling about that is that when those who are following Christ and who say that there is redemption in him participate in that Mm-hmm. In that process that is redemptionless, mm-hmm. we're really going contrary to what we say is the most important message in the world. We are. And I think we're also involving ourselves in something that's really none of our business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean that both in sort of like the big picture sense of that, you know, there's that that verse in in First Corinthians where Paul says, you know, who am I to judge outside the church? Like we're holding people in many cases to a, a standard of behavior that they may not have ever pledged to keep. Um, and But also on a, on a more individual sense, again, like we're going after people who, who don't owe us an apology because they didn't do anything to us. They did something to someone else. They owe that person an apology, that usually one person, not the thousands and thousands of people. And, it, you know, I, I think there's there's something wrong in that to to be demanding something of someone who has not done you personally the harm mm-hmm. there is so much that you do in the book that is related to many of the subjects of divisiveness and rancor that are in and outside of the church you you say that this epistemological crisis takes different forms on different ends of the political spectrum you have some very uh i think good and accurate analysis of um, things that we encounter more on the right, Mm -hmm. things that tend more on the left end of the spectrum. I'm not going to ask you to deal with these in detail because I want to spend a lot of time on your constructive piece, but just to give listeners a a kind of a a preview, you, you talk about the conspiratist mentality Mm-hmm. That and and why it is that in some cases religion may feed into that, uh, and then on the other end you speak about the identitarian assumption in terms of the stance that someone is speaking from a position of authority that cannot be contended with because of the uniqueness of their situatedness, and both of those. I, as I read through the book, I said, well, there is something here that's going to offend everybody. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, it, it was good. I'm glad that you did all of that. And I, I do hope uh, 
that particularly uh, Christians will read it and not read it defensively, but really take the time to at least be open to what you're saying and ask, can I relate to any of this from my own perspective, from my own experience, and not just read the book, as I'm sure it would be tempting to do, to go through the book. And it's kind of like when you sit in church and you hear a sermon and you think, who needs to hear it? Um, <laughs> who else needs to hear it? But I I really appreciated the kind of the full-orbed perspective that you took, showing how that this epistemological crisis is so pervasive. But let's let's take the remainder of our time and talk about your constructive uh, pieces. The uh, last three chapters, you're dealing kind of with a way forward. And you said, I'm not optimistic that we'll find large-scale fixes for our epistemic crisis. And at first, that sounds depressing. <laughs> and so I wanted to ask you, Explain that some some more. I, I I in reading the book, I know you're not despairing. I know that you're not hopeless. But what do you mean about not having optimism about large scale fixes? Yeah. Uh, well, so we've we've a little bit gestured in that direction already, which is people want to point at like the media is the problem, or social media is the problem, or both. And again, they are big parts of the problem. But for social media, especially, people want to say like, well, if we could just regulate it better. If they could just do better content moderation, then we wouldn't have people spreading lies and we wouldn't have to be always be on our guard about that stuff and it would be better. And I I do not think that that is going to happen um, in the way that people envision. I, I've spent a fair amount of time looking at like what are the, the details of what people propose for how we could fix social media on a large scale. And there's not a lot of there there. Um, mm -hmm. Often it's, it's coming from people who don't have a good grasp of like the technology, especially our, our elderly members of Congress. And often the, the proposals are just either not workable or, or they would have you know, lots of unintended consequences um, or they would be very easily gotten around. Yeah. So I, I tend to think that that you know, maybe if we this nuclear war with Russia happens and we stop having the internet, maybe some things will calm down. Um, obviously, not not hoping for that kind of uh, large scale change. But you know, go if things continue for the foreseeable future, like the way that we anticipate them to be, we we still have social media, we still have the internet. Things are going to evolve and change a little bit. But I think the, the genie is basically out of the bottle. I do not think that we're suddenly going to just someone's going to come up with, well, here's how to make Facebook better. And now our problems are gone. Um, yeah. That idea that there's going to be some big external solution coming to save us. It, I just, I don't think, I think it's always going to be significantly, primarily a matter of the choices we are making for ourselves and our families and our churches. Yeah. And as you said, that um, one of the reasons that there won't be the large scale fix uh, is because some of the people who are involved and who are trying to create the large-scale fix don't understand the technology. I would also add, I agree with you there, I think that there is also, there are those who understand the technology, but don't understand human nature. Because mm -hmm. like I think of some, I really enjoy and appreciate a lot of the things that someone like Tristan Harris 
uh, what the Center for Humane Technology is trying to do. Mm-hmm. But then I, I listen to what to me seems like a, a naive optimism at times where he thinks it is just a matter of tweaking the technology. Mm. Yeah. And, and it also is a business matter. Like there, there yes. are some cases where, you know, I, some people do come up with some pretty good ideas, ways to add friction to what we're doing and make it harder to, you know, spread information really quickly or, or maybe say like, well, you can only make three tweets a day. So think really hard about what they are. But those are those are that kind of thing, which might actually have an effect, will never be implemented because it runs right. directly counter to like you know the business interests of the companies. Yeah, you say a lot about wisdom. Proverbs is woven throughout the book, and what mm-hmm. Proverbs has to say about folly. Mm-hmm. Uh, much of what we have been discussing has it could be condensed in saying that we are now in a state where folly is both encouraged and rewarded on large scales. Mm-hmm. And, and so it makes it more tempting and we have to be more vigilant. Uh, but you also have a lot to say about humility and the cultivation of humility. And you refer to what you call a common sense humility. And you you deal with a number of um, pieces in that. But uh, could you tell us just a portion of what goes into that as you consider common sense humility. Like when when I was growing up in uh, Christian schools, we always thought about, you know, like are you are you being tempted by relativism or do you know that there's absolute truth? And so like the rejection of relativism uh, meant this this certainty, like we know for sure that we have the truth and, and we're not going to waver on that. I mean, there is objective truth, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that we know it, certainly not that we know it in full. Um, and, you know, the, the Bible is clear about this, like thinking about that in verse Corinthians 13, the now we know in part, like we see it as, as through a mirror dimly. We, we objective truth exists, but, but we are not objective and we do not have a God's eye view on the world. Um, and just because we know the truth in, in one subject doesn't mean we know it in another subject. And so this idea that well, if we're rejecting relativism, we're going to have this posture of, of absolute certainty that I think this is a false dichotomy and misleads us about our own capacity and pushes us toward, toward pride and not humility. Um, and so basically the gist of that se- section is that truth, truth does exist. We are created with the capacity for knowledge and the capacity to communicate truth to one another. But that does not mean that at any given moment on any specific topic that I have a full grasp on the truth um, or that I have communicated it well or that, um, you know, my understanding and pursuit of that knowledge hasn't been colored perhaps for the better, but also perhaps for the worse by like my context and my experiences and then my perspective on things. And so yeah, I'm trying to to strike a a middle ground between sort of giving up on right. on on accessing truth and just that that extreme certainty that leaves no room for for question or conversation. Yeah, one of the lines that uh, I highlighted was to admit our understanding of truth is influenced by our perspective is not to deny that objective truth exists or that we can come to know it. 
It isn't relativism or subjectivism. It's a humble recognition of our limits as humans who do not yet fully know, who still must say to one another, know the Lord. And uh, I, I really appreciated that. I also, in that section, you refer to the hermeneutic of obedience. Can you tell us what, what that is? Yeah, so I have spent a lot of my adult life in a, a Mennonite church. And the Mennonites have a this idea called the hermeneutic of obedience. It's part of the, the Anabaptist tradition. And so the the idea is basically that when you when you are reading, they're particularly talking about scripture. When you're reading scripture, your understanding of it is going to be limited by your willingness to obey it, like your your capacity to come to a, a real knowledge of what a passage of scripture is trying to say is directly tied to the the like the posture of your heart as you're coming to that passage. If you do not want something to be true, it is going to be much more difficult for you to perceive that it is true. Um, and that that was a a really I, I don't know if it's unique to the, the Mennonite the Anabaptist tradition. It probably isn't as an insight, but um, it was certainly not an idea that that I had encountered before. I think we, you know, as Protestants, we like to think that we're, you know, we're just coming and we're we're getting the plain truth of scripture, but we're not like a, a you know a blank slate coming to scripture just just copying down whatever it says without any filter, without any confusion. Um and and that willingness to like to actually obey what we find in scripture, I think actually does matter quite a lot to our understanding um, because we're not just these these creatures of pure reason able to to just sort of like sponge up truth without any without any difficulty or um, without any motivated reasoning. Yeah, as I read that portion, I, I thought of Jesus' words, if any man is willing to do the will of my father, he shall know of my teaching, whether it is from God or whether it is from myself. Mm-hmm. That the the will, the volition, is tied up in the knowing. Mm-hmm. Well, at at one point in the book, actually, maybe in several places in the book, you refer to the knowledge crisis as a failure of discipleship, as is particularly within the church. Mm-hmm. And so, I wanted to ask you. If you were speaking to pastors, and I'm sure there are some pastors, youth pastors, and parents who are going to be listening to this, I hope we'll be picking up the book, where do we need to make changes in our discipling at the level of the church and in the home so as to work against the the knowledge crisis that you are putting your finger on yeah it's it's a difficult i mean i think pastors who are are pastoring right now are almost in the most difficult position that anyone will be on this subject because none of this was would have been addressed when you were in seminary 5 10 20 years ago it just wasn't on the radar right like you know back then we thought that the risk of the internet was that you were going to get abducted after a stranger lures you to a walmart parking lot or something and it turns out that's not the the biggest risk, uh, you know, not that it has never happened, but that's not the biggest risk that we're contending with day in and day out. I guess I would say 
two things. One is that we've touched a little bit about this is a matter of epistemology, um, you know, the study of knowledge. How do we acquire it? What is it? I think that there are a lot of places and times where we wouldn't have to think about epistemology. Um, but if we are going to continue living as we do and engaging in the media environment that we have, and 99% of us are going to keep doing that, um, we do have to think about it a little bit more deliberately. And so like from a pastoral teaching um, context, I think talking to congregants very deliberately about, you know, how are you acquiring knowledge? What, like, what are your, what is the sort of the process by which you're assessing whether something is true? Essentially, don't let people go out unprepared um, without ever having thought consciously about, you know, how they, how they assess the dozens, hundreds, sometimes thousands of truth claims that they're encountering all day long, every single day. Hmm. So I think we need to be talking about this stuff in a more explicit manner, in a way that we have not done in decades past. Um, and that, you know, in, in other places, again, that would be fine, but I don't think it's fine for us. And, and just for clarification. So mm-hmm. when you say be more explicit and talk about epistemology, mm-hmm. you're not necessarily meaning, you know, the philosophy of. Yeah, not not in, in an academic sense, much more along the lines of what we've been discussing here about. Um, like developing that common sense humility and, and thinking mm-hmm. through what what does it, how am I relating to truth? What is sort of like my my mental posture and my attitudes as I'm assessing things? Like, am I confident in my own rightness? Am I willing to give hearings to other perspectives? Am I gathering information um, in a way that is intellectually virtuous? Or am I just sort of um, you know, going out and looking for whatever will make my side win, um, those kinds of things. And I think high school and, and college are great times to talk about that, especially when a lot of young people have that real taste for debate and they want to think about these sorts of things. It's a yes. really good time to start doing it. The other big thing that I would say, though, and I talk about this a lot in the second to last chapter, is we need to... And, and pastors should be directing us in really assessing where are we putting our attention? How are we spending our time? What voices are we giving our thoughts over to for often, you know, hours on end? Something that I've heard pastors say over and over again, researching this book um, in some of my own interviews, but also elsewhere before I even started this project. Um, is this near verbatim line of, you know, I get people one to two hours a week, but Facebook or Fox News or MSNBC or Twitter gets them 10, 15, 20, 30 hours a week, and I can't compete. Uh, level out those numbers. <laughs> like, that's, I think this is, you know, and, and obviously as a pastor, you can't be controlling what everybody in your congregation, like what their schedule is and their their phone usage habits but if you have small groups, if you have, or, or even, you know, as a parent within the family, mm-hmm. um, be be keeping each other accountable to, again, like make those numbers at least closer together. Uh, I mean, and, and it's like, I'm as guilty of this as anyone of, of having that imbalance. Um, but the, what we are spending our time on, you know, if, if we are hearing our pastor speak for 30 minutes a week and we have a podcast in our ears for two, three hours a week, who is the, at a certain point, who is the greater authority in our lives? If we're spending 
you know, five times the time on Twitter that we're spending reading scripture. And I think a lot of us are, mm-hmm. you know, what is shaping us more. And so those very practical things, I think, um, you know, shifting time from things that are making our knowledge crisis worse to like a potluck. I, I mean, it sounds very simplistic, but I, I, the way we spend our time shapes what kind of people we become. So I think it's hard to overstate the importance of that. Yeah, the uh, giving greater priority and time to embodied presence and just being with people, um, not necessarily producing something or having something that you can point to and say, look what we accomplished or look Mm -hmm. how efficiently we did this, but we were enjoying the presence of one another. And Mm -hmm. yeah, there is so much more that I wish we could talk about. One other question before we close, and I'm just curious as to, in your research and your writing of this, what do you think has had the greatest impact on you personally? Hmm, that's a tough one. I don't know if I've answered that before. And maybe not the greatest thing, because superlative questions, sure. I hate them too. But a, <laughs> a, a something that has left a maybe a deeper, maybe not new, but a a deeper impression upon you. Yeah. I think, honestly, a lot of the like habit and attention stuff that we were just speaking about, not that it was on my radar before. I mean, it's something I think about quite a lot because of my own, you know, habits and, and like predilections for, for failure on that front, but having sort of sat down and, and spelled it out, in terms of what I think we should be doing, which is, you know, often in contrast with what I myself am doing, was quite bracing. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, you know, people always, the pastors always say, like, I'm preaching to myself. And it's very true. Uh, there's like, there's a lot of times where I look at my own habits and attention and say, this is off. And mm-hmm. now I've written 7,000 words detailing exactly how bad it is. Uh, so yeah, I would say probably that. And and I think, you know, not to to end on a grim note, but I think that for me and for a lot of us, it's going to be something that we have to think about for the rest of our lives. But on a, the slightly more positive side, it does position us to be much better prepared to think about how to introduce like our kids and future generations to this stuff, because we have a, a far more accurate understanding of the risks and the pitfalls than our parents possibly could have. Thank you. Well, I heartily recommend the book to those of you who are listening. It is, again, untrustworthy, the knowledge crisis, breaking our brains, polluting our politics, and corrupting Christian community by Bonnie Christian. And Bonnie, thank you so much for your time today and for your work in this book. 